I am Sarah Jane Case, and this is Enneagram and Coffee. Hi friends, happy Friday. I hope your week has treated you well. Today we are talking with Dr. Tracy Packiam-Alloway, an award-winning psychologist, professor, author, and TEDx speaker. She's published 15 books, her latest being Think Like a Girl, 10 Unique Strengths of a Woman's Brain and How to Make Them Work for You. Dr. Tracy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I am so excited to be here. I am geeking out over what we're going to get to talk about today. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) And um, as you know, we start every show with your rosebud and thorn. So what are your rosebud and thorn today? Yeah, I love that, first of all. Um, So it took me a little while to think of it, but my rose... Um, it's definitely my book, uh, Think Like a Girl. It's, it was you know, written during the pandemic, and I am very excited about it and excited when people get excited to share and talk about it as well. Um, my bud is a new app that I have coming up. It's a mental health app, a mental wellness app, where it gives people an action that they can do every day that's based on science that will help improve their mental well-being. It's called Brappy for Brain Happy. So that's my bud. Cool. <laughs> and my thorn, and, and this was very tricky um, to think about, but I, also I really love that you encourage your guests to do that. Um, for me, the thorn, I would say, is to be very present focused. And it's definitely something that I'm working on. I'm a very goal oriented person. And so to be able to enjoy and even just rest in the present is something I'm continually uh, working and being intentional about. Mm, yeah. And you are, I think you told me you're an Enneagram type three, right? Yes. Yeah. So it is like, so we, we're both future oriented types. So I'm a seven, you're a three. It's like, what's next? Where are we going? Where are we headed? <laughs> and sometimes it's like, oh, this is the moment. Like this is my life right here. Right. <laughs> yes. And I have to remind myself, you know, just as I said, just to, to be mindful and just to focus on that specific moment. Mm-hmm. So what it, I think I'm so interested in your work because you're not only talking about, you know, like empowering ourselves as women, but also it's backed by actual brain science, which we're a big fan of over here. Like what's, where's the evidence? What's the proof? Um, how did this start for you? It started, you know, my life as a, um, academic is research-based. So I read a lot of scientific articles. I publish a lot of scientific articles. And I began to notice that a lot of times scientific findings are presented with a broad brush stroke, a kind of one size fits all. But actually there are a lot of nuances. So while our behavior may look similar or may look different, there may be different motivators that drive that outcome. And I wanted to explore and unpack that and really investigate whether some of these are generated by ourselves? Are they generated by myths that we believe about ourselves that society tells us? Or are there some neurochemical differences? Um, and, and ultimately, how can we lean into some of these strengths? And one of the things that I think is so interesting is you talk about like dispelling the myths around kind of like how women think. And I'm curious, because one of the things that you've talked about is like, women making emotional decisions when stressed like what are we what's kind of yeah what that's what's the myth and then how do we look at the other side of that 
Yes. Yeah, so this is a common myth. And, you know, I've, I've heard women even say this to me as well, that they're emotional when they make decisions. And I wanted to explore whether or not that was in fact true. So I used a very, uh, a now very widely used scenario. It's so popular that it's even made its way into some ma mainstream TV shows. It's called the trolley dilemma. And it, the setup is really simple. You're a bystander and you can see this trolley or this train coming at top speed towards you. And you can see that it's going to injure and harm five people that are standing on the track. You can save the day if you switch the track the train is on. So one person will get harmed, but you can save the other five lives. And so we know when we make decisions under stress, there are two pathways. There's an emotional pathway, that kind of emotional decision making. And there's a rational pathway where we, we kind of think of the greater good. And the other research has shown that women typically fall on the, you know, the side of where it's more emotional. And even in my own lab, I found that oftentimes my female participants would say things like, oh, I can't, I can't make this decision. It's too much. It's too difficult. And we do actually perceive this decision, even though it's artificial and it's happening in a research lab. There's other research to show that our stress levels are elevated. We actually perceive this quite seriously. And we, we do tend to weigh the consequences. So I found that this is in fact the case, but the reason for that is very unique, that for women, we are motivated by a desire to protect. And so we want to protect, we don't want to cause harm. And as a result, this can look like we're making an emotional decision because we want to protect as many people as we can in the outcome. So that was the first thing that I found that while the behavior may look one way, it's actually stemming from a very powerful protective place. The second thing that I found related to decision-making and, and the female brain was that we can actually switch that decision-making pathway. So if you want to make a less emotional decision, so for example, let's say you're being headhunted and your first instinct is to think of your team. You think, well, you know, I, we've been working together. I don't want to cause harm. I don't want to, you know, let my boss down. We've been, you know, working on this project. And so it may be difficult for you to consider your own professional uh, outcome in this situation because you are so focused on the other people in your team. And a quick way that you can switch that decision-making track to a more rational decision-making pathway is by sticking your hand in a bucket of ice. And I found Sticking that, our hand in a bucket of ice? Yes, exactly. It sounds a little uh, unusual or unorthodox, but the reason it works is because it activates your, your fight-or-flight mechanism in your brain, which recruits your amygdala, your brain's emotional center. So your emotional brain is busy focusing on this small moment of stress with this hand in the bucket of ice. And that frees up your rational brain, your prefrontal cortex, to actually look at the big picture and think of how this decision could benefit you. Whoa. So, so you're saying, okay, I'm in this indecision phase. Mm -hmm. I can, like, if I stick my hand in a bucket of ice, my brain is more equipped to make the decision logically. Exactly. Incredible. <laughs> it was remarkable. And we found this, you know, in our lab and it's, it's, it was just amazing when we, we found this and we did, you know, we confirmed that uh, we looked at different kinds of stress indicators, both from the uh, individual's reporting levels of stress, as well as, you know, their, their physiological response to stress. And we did find that just a short minute of your hand in a bucket of ice is enough to flip how you make your decisions. Wow. So 
I'm going to switch gears on this a little bit here because when I think about stress, I often think about relationships. Mm -hmm. And I know that a lot of the people in the audience are like very relational focused. The Enneagram can be a very relational tool. Um, And the question I get asked the most is, are there certain Enneagram types more suited than others for, for one another, basically? So I know that you talk about like specific personality traits to look for in a partner for like long-term relationship success. And I want to kind of get into that with you a little and yeah. not, you don't have to bring the Enneagram into it, but just kind of, yeah, let's chat about that. Yeah, that's such a great question. And it was actually something that, you know, as I was writing this book was, was very interesting for me to discover, you know, we always talk about what's the best type for you in a relationship setting. And what I found from from the scientific studies is it's not so much um, a, a type in the traditional way that we think of it, whether we think of status or attractiveness and those kinds of, you know, more commonly thought of types, but it's actually our personality types. And so uh, if you think of the big five, you have extroversion, you know, outgoingness, you have conscientiousness, the hardworking type, uh, you have neuroticism, you have openness to new experiences, and you have agreeableness. And we do know, uh, first of all, that there's a lot of studies showing that there's a strong correlation, a very strong relationship between the Enneagram types and the big five. So we know we're in the general, you know, generally, there's a lot of overlap between these two, which is good to know. Um, And we know specifically, um, for for relationship satisfaction, and that's typically measured by how long you are in a relationship and how satisfied the partners report feeling with each other, that conscientiousness and agreeableness are two big, important types that are uh, that play a role when it comes to relationship satisfaction. Mm-hmm. So we're like kind of we're looking for someone who is conscientious and agreeable. Yeah, so I, I think if I remember correctly, agreeableness tends to relate well with, I think, type two and nine on the Enneagram, um, yeah. typically score high. And agreeableness, if you if you think about that, even just on an everyday perspective, we make hundreds of decisions as, as partners, you know, as couples every day. And if we have a hard time, we're constantly disagreeing or one feels like they're giving more than the other, that's when we begin to notice a little friction, like a few little cracks may start appearing. But when you have people who are highly agreeable, that that can be, you know, kind of smooth out that relationship, reduce some of that friction. So that's certainly one of the important factors. Conscientiousness, uh, I believe, corresponds with type one uh, in the Enneagram. And um, for that, conscientiousness is a little unique in that we can think of it as someone who's hardworking, someone who's, you know, focused on the goal and so on. But the tricky thing about conscientiousness is that when we're in our 20s, this may not be perceived as such a a positive trait. This individual may seem very driven, you know, very focused, maybe even appearing that they don't have time for the relationship. But in fact, over time, this tends to mellow. And as we go into our 30s and our 40s, conscientiousness plays a very important role in relationship satisfaction because typically the partner, both male and female, will bring that level of conscientiousness to wanting to make that relationship uh, work. They want to bring that same energy that they do from a work perspective into a relationship, which obviously is very you know positive and beneficial. 
Yeah, I know that's going to mean so much to the ones who are listening to just feel like, yeah, that's what I do. (laughs) So let's say we're not a conscientious or agreeable type. Mm -hmm. What do we do? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I think that, you know, agreeableness is a good starting point. So this, this again may look like the nice person, you know, the ones that we may not overlook because they're not, maybe they don't, they're not the high and open to new experiences. Those are usually, I think the sevens and the eights, um, I believe in the Enneagram and and even the fours and the fives. So those are the open to experience type that that seem exciting, you know, that want to try new things. And the agreeable in contrast may just seem like, oh, they're just, they're nice. You know, they're they're not really that exciting or adventurous. That's not necessarily the case, but um, agreeableness, if you wanted to uh, work on that a little bit or kind of magnify that a little bit. One way to do that is just to even think, you know, this idea of empathy. How would you, what would the other person like in this situation? Of course, we know empathy plays a big role in relationships as well. And so having that sense of other-mindedness, thinking of how that other person might like something, whether it's, you know, as simple as going to a restaurant, which restaurant would you like? Can you take turns instead of always feeling like, yeah, but today I'm really in the mood for eating X food. And that, you know, that's just in a microcosm, one way in which a lack of agreeableness may manifest itself, where you're constantly thinking of, well, you know, my day was tough. So therefore, I would like to make this decision, rather than thinking of um, your partner instead. Yeah, I'm curious, in that, yeah, like take intentionally stepping into that space of putting yourself in someone else's experience. It some of us will might have a harder time slowing down to get there, <laughs> but it is like, it, I hear you saying like that is in, like integral to long-term success in your relationship is the ability to pause in that way and be present for that. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. And there's some, you know, even as I'm a licensed psychologist and one of the things that we use even in our sessions is, is something called the stop skill. And so I often say practice in the small cases where it's not, you know, high stakes and it's not like you and your partner have to agree, are we going to move to a different city or should I take this job? Where it's obviously a little harder if you haven't been practicing the skill to all of a sudden, you know, manifest that and decide to demonstrate that. So I say with small things like, where should we have coffee this Saturday? Where should we eat? And what should we do this weekend? Those are great opportunities to practice other mindedness and using the stop skill where you use those words stop. So you stop and think, okay, you take a step back, whether that's, you know, like a physical step or just even like moving your body back. And this is based on the idea of what's called embodied theory, where you, you reverse engineer it, you use your body to direct your mind. Uh, so instead of you know, doing the most immediate or natural or automatic response that a brain is going to adopt. Our brains are efficient. We're going to naturally gravitate to what we're, we're uh, practiced and what we have automated in responding. So the stop skill lets us literally say the word stop in our head, take that step back, and then observe, well, what does my partner look like? Or do they, what would they like to do? What are they feeling right mm-hmm. now? And then proceed. How would you like to proceed? And there's, you know, that proceed may mean that okay, today we'll let them choose, the next time we'll get to choose. And that sense of reciprocity may play out where maybe that's not such a common feature in your partnership. Mm, yeah, I love that. Like just the word stop, even just having that that word in my head slows me down. Mm. I, I really like that phrasing of like, 
Yeah, stop. I mean, like physically backing up. I like that you said that. It feels like a physical representation of like, hey, we're we're pausing here. Right. Today's podcast is brought to you by Fairty Brands. I cannot believe that we are in summer and we're actually going to have a real summer this year. Naturally, I've started thinking about looking good after a year and change because I want to do things this summer. I want to see people. I want to go places. As you already know, I am planning a trip to Chicago next week to see my best friends who also happen to be my style icons. I've also been watching a lot of Downton Abbey and I'm trying to convince them to have high tea with me to get dressed up and like do the whole thing. And that's where Fair Tea comes in. They make the perfect clothes for summer. Fair Tea is a family-run brand making high-quality, timeless clothing with modern design and functionality. You know when you're searching for that ideal summer outfit, that set, that shirt, that dress that feels like you've had them for years? Maybe it's in a gorgeous print and it fits so perfectly that it feels almost too good to be true, but still looks like it might be? Well, that's fair tea. The summer vibe for me this year is like casual fancy. I want to wear lounge clothes that look like I didn't try to look nice, but for some reason I do, like a celebrity in an airport. That's why I'm obsessed with Verity. Their clothes are the perfect blend of lived in, but with such high quality fabrics that you feel like you're really dressed up. The set that I'm currently in love with is their gauze tie-dye tank and short set. It screams, I'm just out here taking care of my plants and I have to run for coffee really quickly. Um, Don't mind me, I'm just fancy like this all the time. Like that's the vibe I'm going for. And they're so confident in the quality of their stuff. They have a lifetime guarantee of quality. Like they will replace or fix your clothes forever, no matter what. That is so cool. And to top it off, Verity is giving Enneagram and Coffee listeners 20% off. That's 20% off your order. So stock up on all your clothes for summer right now. Head to veritybrand.com and use code Enneagram at checkout to snag 20% off all of your summer gear. That's code Enneagram at Verity, F-A-H-E-R-T-Y brand.com for 20% off your order. Thank you so much, Verity, for supporting the podcast. Hmm. So the second myth that I would love to talk about that you've dispelled is that women suffer more from unhappiness than men. Can we talk about that? Yeah. So this is, there's certainly at least twice as more women who report experiencing depression, clinical depression compared to men. And of course, there's a number of factors There's you know, social awareness and, and a number of different reasons. But one of the things that we do know is that when it comes from our neurochemistry, that the female brain has three times more receptors that will fixate on stress and anxiety compared Whoa. to the male brain. So we do know that something in our wiring that is kind of helping us, if you will, spotlight on some of these situations that are are not so helpful. But the good news is there's also research to show that none of this is deterministic, that simply because we have this particular wiring, it doesn't mean that we can find more healthy and more adaptive patterns. And one of them, and it's something that I practice every day, is changing one word. And, you know, we know that, again, this is based on my research. I had uh, a study of almost 4,000 individuals, men and women, different ages, 
And I found that um, one of, you know, for women, especially rumination, that's overthinking plays a big role when it comes to depression. So for for men, they have a particular buffer uh, that protects them against depression. For women, the more they ruminate, the more we overthink, the more likely we are to experience depressive symptoms. And so to counter that, we know again that you know our wiring is set up a particular way. So we can counter that simply by changing one word. Instead of saying, Yes, but so for example, let's say we had an interview and your you know your friend says, well, how'd it go? Did it go well? Well, yes, but I didn't get to say everything. Yes, but I don't know if I'll get the job. So that but kind of brings us to that ruminative overthinking space in our head. And if we can change that word but to yes and, yes and I had a chance to showcase my skills. Yes and I was able to network. Yes and I learned new things that I can bring to my next interview. It shifts our mindset from a more pessimistic or negative bias to an optimism bias. And that's very language driven. We know that our optimism bias in our brain recruits the language errors in the brain. So it's important, especially to be intentional in using positive words, using the yes and phrase. And the exciting thing is that lots of brain imaging studies show that this is this is a continuum. It's not all or nothing. We're not absolutely optimistic or absolutely pessimistic. And that the more we practice it, the more we show activation in those language areas, the optimism areas in our brain. I keep thinking of a conversation I had with someone today who said, I feel like I'm a better mother because I'm worrying. Like if I worry more then I'm loving more. And I, I love that you said like the way you're talking about this, it, it reminds me of just that sense of like, yeah, we have the capacity to worry, but we also have the capacity to think positively and they, they can like, the fear can be real, but we can still kind of focus on the options and the possibilities. Is that, am I interpreting that correctly? Yeah. And I think here too, it's, um, Another thing that we know that's linked into uh, mental health is this idea of locus of control, agency, what is in our control and what isn't. And sometimes when we worry, it's our way of finding ourselves, finding a, a piece of control when things seem out of control. But a more healthy and effective way to do that is instead of, is to first of all, accept and acknowledge, okay, I can't control A, B, C, or D, but I can control this. So, and, you know, this piece here, this is what I can, by control, meaning what can I manage? What can I impact in my child's life today? And, you know, the, the aspect here that's really beneficial is, to, again, to be present focused and to think of what you can do today rather than the worry, which tends to be, you know, a, a big fog sometimes for, for some of us. Um, and so it's almost a false sense of agency. We think that if we're worrying, we are an agent in the situation, but it actually leaves us feeling exhausted at the end of the day because we've not actually, we've not accomplished anything. So if you think back on the day, we think, well, what have I actually done? I've, I've expended all of this mental and emotional energy worrying, but there's nothing to show for it. In contrast, mm -hmm. if you say, I accept that these things I can't change, but this thing I can change. And that's what I'm going to focus on today. Oh, that's so good. I want to make sure we get to the third myth because I'm most possibly most excited about this one, which is the myth that women have to act like men to be effective leaders. 
Yeah. So this was really interesting for me too, as I, you know, when I was getting a chance to speak and to share it uh, at different venues and even looking at discussion boards and forums, I, I would hear women say, well, I was told to act more manlike or dress more like a man or, you know, or some women would even say, well, I felt like this, this was me. I, you know, I am, I had to develop this kind of leadership uh, style. And a couple things came out. One was that there's a study that showed that when women adopted more masculine traits, what the researchers identified as masculine traits, maybe, you know, needing to be right, feeling a bit aggressive in their communication, that their male colleagues actually perceived them as weaker leaders. So it was counterproductive that by adopting traits that were not authentic to themselves, they they were being perceived as a weaker leader. So that was the first thing that was interesting to me. The second thing was um, in my own research lab, we were looking at different types of leadership styles. And generally speaking, there are two styles. One is called transactional where you're goal-directed, you have a deadline, you work towards that. Another is transformative, where you're collaborative, you're kind of working together, let's throw all the ideas on the table and then work through that together. And the interesting thing is that it's exactly that, it's a style, we're not born with it, and we can uh, we can change your style depending on the situation, in the same way that Today, I may wear a blue outfit. Tomorrow, I may wear a yellow outfit. Um, Our leadership styles are very much like that. We may say that this situation calls for a transactional approach. Tomorrow's situation may call for a more transformative approach. And what we found uh, here was our female leaders, uh, even our millennial female leaders, that when they adopted a style that was not authentic to themselves, but they felt they should do, they reported feeling more stress mm-hmm. and they experienced burnout much more quickly. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That so the Enneagram talks a little bit about leadership style. And I would say like seven. So I, well, I, the one thing I know for sure, because I'm a type seven, is that type sevens kind of treat leadership as we are all equals. Mm-hmm. So when I was an employee, I talked to my boss like we were partners. And now that I'm the boss, I talk to my employees like we're partners. Like it's completely just like a, we're all equals here. I serve you, you serve me. And the moments where I feel like I have to interact with an employee or a team member as if we are not equals, I, it's like all of the energy just drains from my body. Wow. That is fascinating. Yeah. I'm so interested that in that like sense that like we, yeah, when we, we operate outside of kind of that natural or like what feels the most true to us, mm-hmm. it's, it's just more stressful. Yeah. And mm-hmm. that's the big myth that, you know, again, it's not a neurochemical myth. It's one that we hear, we're told, and we may even tell ourselves that, that we have to be a certain leader to be an effective, a successful leader. And that's, Mm. that's not, you know, that's not what research bears out at all. Wow. Um, Dr. Tracy, is there anything I'm missing here that we should definitely talk about? I think, I think we covered a lot of, you know, the key aspects. I love how you picked out the ones that you felt your, uh, your listeners would resonate uh, with. And I'm just really grateful that we had a chance to talk more about this. Oh, I am just absolutely honored that you took the time to come on and do this. And I know the audience is going to love our conversation. Um, We do end every episode with rapid fire questions. Are you, are you down? Let's do it. <laughs> okay. I like to go like dun dun dun. Same music. 
<laughs> Question number one is the first book that comes to mind. Um, I liked The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg. I thought that was so powerful about how our brain works and how um, dopamine, the feel-good hormone, is actually released before we even engage in the behavior once it becomes a habit. So in other words, we anticipate the reward before we even uh, engage in that behavior. I have never wanted to ask a guest to be my friend more than I do in this moment. <laughs> I, I'm in, I'm game. <laughs> I'm like, can we talk about brain chemicals forever? Um, what about a favorite song? Oh, wow. Um, that's a good question. I'd have to say you're my sunshine because my mom used to sing this uh, to me all the time when I was a young girl. Oh, I love that. <laughs> Something you wish people knew about you? Um, I wish that people knew about me. I'm from Malaysia. I was born there. Um, I was there for my early childhood, and then my family moved to the U.S. after that. Um, and for me, that's a fun little fact. It forms a lot of my food memories, actually. I, whenever mm -hmm. I think of food, I think of the food that I used to love growing up as a child in Malaysia. Oh, I love that. Dream day, what are you doing? Oh, definitely be outside. I live in Florida and I used to live in Scotland where it rained um, all the time and it was gray and damp. And so my dream day would be outside with a barefoot run on the beach, kind of coffee, spending time with friends, um, but definitely outside. Oh, that's good. You have been everywhere. <laughs> um, your final meal, what are you eating? Um... So I, I like to eat very similar food during the weekday, and typically there's an avocado and an egg involved. Um, so I guess my dream meal would be what I love eating every day, which would be something along those lines. I know it's not very exciting, but um, it makes me happy. So that's what I choose. <laughs> I, no one's ever said that before, and I love that answer because it means you're eating what you really love. <laughs> I do enjoy it. <laughs> and... Do you have any final thoughts, like something that people can leave today just thinking about and what they could be kind of carry away with them from our episode? Yeah, I, I would say it's a three to one ratio. Um, it's something that I try to practice for every negative thought that you have. I always try to follow that with three positive thoughts, three things that uh, we're grateful for. So every time you feel maybe a little down, a little out of sorts, or even a little stuck, always try to be intentional and think of three things that I'm grateful for to reset and uh, switch my mindset. I love how practical that was. That's so useful. <laughs> and for everyone who loved meeting you and listening to you and want more, where can they follow you online? And also where can they grab your new book? Yep. So my book, Think Like a Girl, is available everywhere. Books are sold, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, local bookstores. I can be found on my website, tracyalloway.com. And I'm also on social media at Dr. Tracy Alloway. That's Dr. Dr. And I'd, I'd love to connect uh, uh, with all of you and find out more about some of, some of how your uh, personality affects how you approach life. And we will link all of that for you in the show notes. Y'all can easily access that as well. Dr. Tracy, it was so good to meet you. So fun to hang out with you. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks again for having me. I really enjoyed it. <laughs>